Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast. For those of you listening for the first time, and those who have been loyal listeners, we want you to know how much we appreciate your support. We will continue to bring you interesting people with extraordinary stories from our Bighorn community. We have heard stories of great success, built on hard work, personal fortitude, and in most cases, the will to succeed. Today's episode will again be brought to you by Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, who's been a part of our community for over 70 years, and we continue to appreciate their support. I'm Marty Lachman, your host for these podcasts, and today's guest is Nanette Patti Francini, and also known to Bighorn members as Nanette Yuri, entrepreneur and co-founder of The Sports Club LA. Nanette, welcome. And as I've asked all of our guests, could you begin with the story at the very start, since that becomes the foundation for the stories that follow? Well, I was born at the beach, still a beach girl, in uh, Playa del Rey. And uh, shortly thereafter, we moved to Pacific Palisades where my sister, who's two years younger, was born. But my earliest childhood memories are really living at our home in Van Nuys in the San Fernando Valley where we had an acre of land and Patsy the pig and Ginger the horse and Quack Quack the duck and the ice cream man and I Love Lucy and the donut man and the milkman, <laughs> kids next door our own age. My parents were very much in love, and uh, they were designing and building their dream house in Encino. And we were moving the next day. Half century later, it's tough to talk about this. And I was playing in the front yard, waiting for my father to come home. And instead, the police arrived and he had been killed in a car accident. So my mother was a young widow. We never moved to that house, although a few years ago I went to see it, and the kind people let me in to see it after all those years. But she didn't really have any family other than a half-brother that lived in La Cunada. And so we moved to La Cunada. And uh, that's where I spent elementary and junior high school. My mother married a 48-year-old bachelor. She said, don't ever marry a 48-year-old bachelor because he was done having fun. (laughs) He had been a lifeguard on Balboa. He had gone around the world playing piano on a cruise ship, and they were oil and water. And uh, one night, he broke her wrist and That was the end of Daniel Boone Hendricks in our lives. So I had a lot of power, I guess, at that point. My mother loved the beach, so I talked her into moving to Newport Beach, where I went to high school, Corona Omar High School. And uh, she remarried again to a very nice fellow. They were alcoholics, and I don't want to define my mother, who I loved dearly, who was sweet and kind and responsible and funny and fun, but they were alcoholics, so it was tough. I, I was a straight-A student, and many nights I would spend my 
studying time locked in the bathroom or locked out of the house and trying to study on the front porch. There were funny stories about her, but I feel like I'm painting her with the wrong brush by talking about those funny stories. But by the time I got to college, I did dine out on them. <laughs> so, but I do remember after one dramatic moment, and I had just gotten my driver's license, and I was in the middle of Pacific Coast Highway in Newport, and I said to myself, I will not let this ruin my life. When I was a junior in high school, my physiology partner had a brother at the University of Arizona, and she said, you want to go come with me to visit him? And I said, sure. And we went there. Oh, my gosh, that school was so much fun. And here I was, a straight-A student, probably could have gone anywhere, had no guidance, party school, I'm in. So <laughs> that's where I went, the University of Arizona. I ended up getting a scholarship to, uh, for being the top pi-fi in the country that year. I think it was just because I got good grades. A lot of sorority stuff happens to be about good grades. I uh, had a great time. It was the closest thing that ever came true in my whole life that was just exactly like they told you the dream would be, and it was. So my, my pledge mother and I, you know, everybody, University of Arizona garnered a lot of kids that had uh, wealthy parents. Um, my pledge mother and I were not two of those people. And, <laughs> but we, uh, we always went to, everybody went to Mexico on a train, but Suzanne and I had to sell our clothes to get the ticket for the train. And therefore we were in the car with the goats and the chickens. But that's where I met my business partner, Michael Talla who is my business partner to this day. And um, so that was a fortuitous moment in my life because he has been such a support my entire life and enabled me to do things that maybe I couldn't have done without that because I was in business in an era which seems so odd now, but a lot of women weren't in business just a generation ago. So after college, uh, I was working at a bikini store, and he said, let's do our own thing. Let's open a store. So we did. It's called Foxy Lady Bikinis, and we did mail order and all the top magazines at that time, Cosmopolitan, Vogue, Bazaar, Mademoiselle. Those were the top four. And we had two stores, one in Tucson, where University of Arizona is, and the other store on Balboa Island. And we did wholesale. And um, it was a great little business. We ended up selling it. And uh, then I moved to Aspen, and which was another great moment in my life. So many things, so many people in my life are still from that time. And uh, I was a cocktail waitress and lived with a bunch of people and slept on the couch, and as we did in Aspen in those days. I did end up being Miss Aspen. Um, it might have been because I was sweet and innocent, and there weren't that many sweet and innocent people there at that point. It was sort of the days of the Hunter Thompson and, and you know, a lot of craziness, but uh, I did that. And then um, I... They wanted me to stay. They wanted me to be a snow hostess on the hill in Aspen, which would have been a cool thing. But something told me 
don't do it. You will get stuck and you will be a cocktail waitress when you're 40 or 50 or 60. And so I came back and I, I just lived there that year, although later I was lucky enough to be able to buy a condo on the hill after my business. And that was the right thing. So I came back and I, I moved to LA and people said, well, well, we'll make you a star. You can, you know, we'll make you a famous actress, a famous model. And I'm thinking, you know, my father never wanted me to do this. But if it's that easy, I'll do it. <laughs> but I was terrible at it. I was really terrible at it. But um, if you're a model, they send you out on commercials and, and, and parts for movies. And one day they sent me to an office full of Emmys. A couple guys sitting there, and I don't remember which studio, but it was a big one, maybe Warner Brothers. And they actually said, if you sleep with us, you get the part. So those things really do happen. And um, I stood there for a moment, and I thought, is there anything really profound I can say that will change these guys? And I thought, nah. <laughs> and fortunately... I didn't have the desire to be an actress, so I had no emotional or moral dilemma about that. I just walked out, and I remember driving. Again, I, know, I have these epiphanies on streets, and I remember the street, Sunset and Boulevard and Beverly Glen, and I thought, I have no control over my destiny. I have got to change that. And um, I called Michael Pella, who had started a racquetball business in Oregon, and he said, come up here, learn the business, and we'll do a club. I think the only thing that I would ask at this point, and I can, is that th this childhood that is still so painful and still so memorable and, and still obviously emotional, this really gave you the strength, I would think, to move forward in this part of your life. I mean, again, terrible things happen, but they, there is some rhyme or reason to it. Our lives take di different twists and turns because the strength that you showed at every step of the way here had to come from someplace. I mean, it came from within you, but you're a product of those experiences. Well, I am a product of that. And I, I, I mean, I think that I may have actually benefited from being a child of an alcoholic. I, I have read one book once, and I thought, what's so wrong with that? And I don't want to diminish all the people that are in deep pain over that. And I sound like I am, but only when I go back there. And I don't usually go back. I've had a happy, successful life. And you didn't allow it to define you. I did not let, allow it to define me. And there were moments when... I'd hide my mother's liquor and because I couldn't understand why she loved that more than she loved me, which she really didn't. But as a young child, you think that. So, uh, but I give, I, I don't know, I give a lot of credit for my whole attitude just by being born lucky, just being born with the right attitude. You know, I, I don't have to fight to be happy when I get up in the morning. And I know a lot of people do. And I, I feel for them. And I'm just so fortunate. And I would say that 
because of those experiences and not allowing you to be defined by that, you take control of your life because if you don't, who is? And so the, the story that's about to follow this is all because of you were going to be your own person. You were going to, you were taking control of your life rather than let other people take control of it. Exactly. I, I, thank goodness, had the fortitude to take care, to take hold of my own life. And, and I don't necessarily recommend this, but I also always served as my own counsel. I never really had a mentor, although my partner, Michael, certainly was a support and is a support. But uh, I, I think I'd recommend a young person to have a mentor, but I, I didn't. I, you know, I just always held my own counsel. So Michael said, come learn the business and, uh, and we'll, do, we'll do a club. I know about a piece of property in Santa Monica, so go find me a house to buy and we'll do a club. So I found him a house to buy in Brentwood, and we... Uh, put a trailer across the street from a whole piece of vacant land, hired our best friends to sell memberships, paid them with pizza and beer to model for the brochure, and we said it's not just exercise, it's fun. It's not just a health club, it's a lifestyle. And we were probably the first people to say that. We were the first people to do a lot of things, uh, from private training in the clubs to co-ed exercise classes to you name it. And uh, our first club, when it opened, was the Sports Connection. And it opened with many, many celebrities, uh, from Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno to the cast of the Emmy-winning um, show, Hill Street Blues. And we had been painting until it opened and we went home to just get a few hours of sleep and we came back and the parking lot was filled with cars and all the members were beautiful. It was the day after Easter so everybody was like rested and looked great, great. And, we, uh, and we had sold 4,000 memberships. And, uh, that, and that club had everything. It was 40,000 square feet. It was not a small club. And it had everything from weight training gyms to spa to child care, uh, racquetball, a lot of racquetball, uh, pool. It had a lot of things. And um, we had already bought another club that had been the old Beverly Hills men's and women's clubs. They were separate. But we wanted to hold those at bay until we could really define who we were as the sports connection. And so then we went back and, uh, and refurbished that, created one club. Eventually, that club had 18,000 members, and our initial club had 16,000 members. And we ended with six Sports Connection clubs. But at the same time, we started working on two other tiers of clubs, the Spectrum Clubs and the Sports Club LA. And uh, the first Spectrum Club was in Manhattan Beach. It was 65,000 square feet, which opened two weeks before the flagship club, which was 100,000 square feet in West Los Angeles, the Sports Club LA. So um, we had our hands full. 
Meanwhile, I was married, and I did have a, a child right in that period too, Coco, and uh, and then the uh, Hollywood came knocking, and uh, did a film about us called Perfect, starring John Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis, and Jamie we actually recommended for the part because uh, she was a member. She was a member of our the Sports Connection Encino. And um, so we thought she would be really good for the part. And she got in terrific shape for that part. Of Anybody that's seen that film would know. I played myself terribly, uh, <laughs> really badly. <laughs> but it was a, it was a Well, it was a stretch of acting. <laughs> it was, really. <laughs> they say the worst thing, to, the hardest thing to do is play yourself, and I will <laughs> attest to that. But uh, anyway, it was fun. We continued opening clubs. So then uh, at, after 1987, when we opened the Sports Club LA, which was to much fanfare, I mean, the Acropolis of physical fitness centers by one publication and the uh, just amazing press and every celebrity in the world. I mean, my assistant said, the question is, who isn't a member? And uh, now this club had full court basketball, Olympic swimming pool, full hair salon, full spa, physical therapy, two restaurants, childcare, you know, of course, major gyms, group exercise studios, sun deck. It, it had Sounds everything. Sounds like Bighorn. <laughs> <laughs> I liken a lot to Bighorn, actually. I really do. You know, and our mantra was, we are the finest sports and fitness complex in the world dedicated to enhancing our members' lives. And we felt very strongly about that. And uh, I think we, I hope we did a good job because that's my legacy at that point, we opened in 1987, we were already about to start working on Reebok Sports Club New York in the Big Apple in New York. Now, it's interesting because this all seems simple. However, it wasn't, of course, but um, you'd sit at a restaurant and you'd hear the, pe the strangers next to you talking about your numbers and how this club was never going to work. And, of course, they didn't know the numbers. They didn't know all the different uh, revenue streams, et cetera. In New York, they said no one will cross the park to go to the Upper West Side for a club. So it was that constant little thing you would hear. I'd be on the beach, and I'd hear it from the towel next to me. I mean, it just went on and on and on. But, you know, you just have to not believe that stuff. Well, you, you know. believed you had a mission statement. You stuck yeah. to that. You were true to your mission statement throughout. Right. But you also, as I recall, and then the research I've done, you created a brand. I mean, there really wasn't anything else like this at the high end. And people wanted to be there. I would think, especially in an L.A. or New York, people, if they weren't members, they felt that they were on the outside looking in. Well, it was definitely an aspirational brand. We even had valet parking in front of some of our clubs, like the first, the flagship club, and people would say, well, why do you have valet parking? It's a fitness club. I mean, really? Can't they walk in? But it was a, it was a moving billboard. 
And of course, the cars. If I ever wanted a new car, I'd just go out to valets and say, okay, which car's the best? Because all the good stuff was there. Also, could you touch on, please, Nanette, a woman in business. So, uh, was it tough for you to be taken seriously? Uh, what challenges, even at that time, or probably even more so in that time, did a woman have to face as she was having a company of this kind of success? There are a few things. First, if you are on the food chain above the men, they don't particularly like that. So you, I've, I maybe didn't do the right thing, but I would tread very lightly. I treaded, even though maybe a man reported to me, I was trying to be very respectful and, and have them be a partner, not, a, you know, not an underling, which I really didn't even consider them that. But in the hierarchy, that was the case. I, I was the spokesperson to the, for the clubs, and because we got so much press, if it was something where the photograph uh, for the where the photographer was coming, they would say dress like a businesswoman, and I would say, but I am a businesswoman, and this is how I dress. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like uh, you're not acting a part. This <laughs> is the real thing. This is it. You know, when we expanded the sports club LA to the East Coast and especially to New York, they weren't quite as respectful. Uh, they were snootier about education. They were, one of the reasons I wanted my daughter to go to Wharton was because they bowed to anyone that went to Wharton, but not to someone who went to the University of Arizona. <laughs> it was, so there was that, and I really felt it from the East Coast, especially New York, but not so much from the West Coast. For my partner, Michael, having a lot of beautiful women in the office was definitely to his advantage because all the insurance people and the lawyers and everyone else, bankers, always wanted to come to our office. Uh, for me, uh, when, we, when we went public uh, in 1994 and we had a board, the board was harder on me. The board was much harder on me and to the point where they really would have preferred me not being there. And, and, and I was attacked once at a board meeting. And there were, uh, there were times in my life where I was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and writing notes about what had happened just in case I needed to use them someday, which is funny because it's not me to go use them. As, and I never would have gone against my partners anyway. But I, I was treated harshly and, and I think unfairly. Uh, uh, and dismissively in um, some of those board meetings and by some of the people from New York because there were times when we were partnered with people in, uh, in the East and those clubs. Uh, so there were some unhappy times. Did some of the people just feel that you were unnecessary or that you were... <laughs> Not an integral part, or did they not give you credit for the success? What? They definitely did not give me credit for the success. They thought that we could just do cookie-cutter clubs, but these clubs were 100 to 150,000 square feet, all different, all catering to the cities they were in. We were in D.C., Boston, San Francisco, Miami, New York, Beverly Hills, and we, you know, they had to be tailored 
to that to those communities and they thought we could just cookie cutter them and they were 50 million dollar clubs they were big big clubs and um they just didn't think that we needed the nuance that i felt we needed in a club that was the highest end i remember i i think my gift is uh having some vision about what people want and not just one person, but tens of thousands of people. I think that's my greatest gift. And I guess I was ahead of my time as far as celebrity culture goes, because it's so huge now. But years ago, I knew that it was important. I mean, Time Magazine would call and say, what celebrities do you have? So, you know, it was not, <laughs> not that difficult. But uh, some of our board members thought it was poo-poo-poo, you know. That's ridiculous. And I love the moment where after hearing five or ten minutes of that, somebody off the record just chatting during a break said, I am so angry. Kevin Bacon didn't say hello to me in the locker room today. <laughs> Oh, you don't care about celebrities. <laughs> he doesn't even know you. <laughs> so, you know, I, they didn't understand PR. They didn't understand the nuance of how we built a company that was bought, not sold to the members. And, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, well, it gets back to that lifestyle thing that you talked about to begin mm -hmm. with. I mean, there were even in this period that you're talking about, there were gyms. Exactly. But there were very few, if any, before you that really addressed the lifestyle. And again, people want to be where cool people are. Exactly. There were two clubs in the country that were likened to ours. And one of them we ended up buying. And the other in New York, which was the Vertical Club, that was similar, and then the East Bay Club Bank Club in Chicago. But we were modeled after them, but I will give them credit for being, you know, high end and a lot of different services and facilities. I wanted our members to be able to walk in and have everything they needed right there, from you know, drop your child off to get a blow dry, you know, everything. Well, maybe the blow dry was more for me, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I had my difficulty, but for the most part with, uh, you know, being a woman in a man's world, I just let it roll off me. You know, it had to be bad for me not to have it roll off me. It, now, you would be in board meetings where the guys would be talking about the basketball game they had the, that morning, and you were left out of that conversation, but that's okay, you know? It had to be bad for me to respond to any kind of discrimination or disrespect. Well, you didn't take it personally this was I might have but you know I let a lot of things roll off me it's life is easier that way and it happens to be my nature <laughs> well you know, again being positive trying to find the the good in things I would think also helps as you move yeah. forward it does cup half full is a very very fortunate thing yeah so now you've got this business that's thriving it's doing extremely well throughout the country what goes on next 
Oh, gosh. Well, at one point, we had 32 clubs that we were operating on three different tiers, Sports Connection, Spectrum Clubs, and the Sports Club LA's. We had 10 Sports Club LA's in the end, and it was sort of a stepping stone, uh, you know, where you might be a Sports Connection member, and then you'd upgrade to the Spectrum Clubs, and you'd upgrade to the Sports Club LA. So it worked out quite well in communities where we had all three. We had 3,500 um, team members at one point, at one point at the same point. But over the course of time, we had at least a half a million members and at least, I don't know, 50, 100,000 team members. I, I mean, we just had a huge amount of people over the course of time. When we, uh, we were co-located with the Ritz-Carlton and the Four Seasons in four of our markets, Four Seasons in Miami and San Francisco, and the Ritz-Carlton in D.C. and Boston, which was a really a great fit because we were about being five-star service, exceeding our members' expectations, which is exactly what those two brands are about. So it worked out really well. We were still private clubs, membership clubs, but we also served the guests of those hotels. You know, I have to mention, we had just a fabulous, fabulous team. Everybody, the longevity in our company was, on average, about 20 years. And we were in business about 35. And many people at 30 years, many. And they all believed passionately in what we believed in. They, they all really cared. So, I, I, you know... It was great. It was a great life's work is what it was. Well, again, we talk about this a lot in a number of these interviews. Longevity of employees is dependent on them feeling a pride of ownership, them being involved. It isn't an employer-employee relationship. You're all part of a family that has a common goal. And that's the only time that these things work, and that's a credit to leadership of any of these companies that they're including their employees, if you will, or partners, uh, into the process. Exactly. And it's interesting because when you go through 35 years of business, I mean, you're starting in the 70s. The you and the employees are thinking differently than in you know 2011. I, I mean... When we started, nobody, want, nobody even thought about having health insurance. I mean, we were all too young. None of us thought anything was going to happen to us. And, you know, a lot of things changed over time, but we still had that core of people really believing in the concept. In fact, had we wanted to do sort of a lower-end brand, which we talked about, I don't think our team could have done it very well. I mean, we talked about that too. We were just really married to the high end. What did you look for in employees when you were hiring people during this process? Well, we looked for the heart of them. And, and that meant actually we used a group called Talent Plus, who also does the Mayo Clinic. They do... I think they do Mercedes. They do a lot of uh, high-end brands. And you go through a sort of a psychological test. And, and we did that with everyone that we employed. And because you're trying to find the heart of them. You know, do they really care about people? First and foremost, do they care about people? And, um, and where are their strengths? And, you know, you can mitigate the mitigate. Midi 
mediate. Well, you can medicate them, too. Yeah, you can medicate them, but if that doesn't work, (laughs) you can get around, I'm not going to try that word again, you can get around their supposed weaknesses. You know, you just pair them with people that have the strengths that they don't. And so so that's how we handled, uh, handled our staffing. And a lot of it's intuitive, too. I mean, along with the testing. Yes. You said before, I mean, you're good at reading people. You're good at at, uh, knowing a vision and sharing that vision. That's, I don't know that that's always a learned skill. I think part of that's an innate skill that somebody like you has that that allows this to develop and flourish like you did. Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, when you have thousands of employees, you don't get to touch every single one of them and find out. You find out eventually, but uh, sometimes they're already hired. But for the most part, you want people to stay. You don't want to, you know, hire them and have to uh, tell them goodbye. You know, but we we really believe that everybody had a good had a spot in, and you just had to find the right spot for them if it was available. You know, everybody has their talented talents, and you just need to get their talent into the right spot. So now you develop the company. You're having a good time. It's a pretty good life. <laughs> um, what Working my rear off, by the way. And, and again, I'm sure, <laughs> because again, that's something that people don't give credit to people in business, men or women, because when you're really good at it, you make it look easy. <laughs> but it's not easy. It's a lot of hard work and a lot of hours. Uh, how does that, How did that affect you? Um, uh, I mean, this is a very successful company you're now running. For the first couple of years, for the first couple of years, my friends were angry at me because I kind of abandoned them because I was so passionate about what we were doing. I'd, I'd forgot to put how to put on makeup even. I, I was just completely driven by the company. And really, it was my baby. I mean, still, I know all my babies, other than my the baby I gave birth to and my uh, three bonus children, my stepchildren, I know the birthdays of every single one of our clubs. It was a real personal passion for me. We never anticipated selling. Um, I just never even thought about selling. I mean, we had these clubs for 34, 35 years, the tiers. We sold the Sports Connections, and we sold the Spectrum Clubs. We went public with the Sports Club LA clubs, and we had 10 across the country in every uh, coastal, uh, big urban area. Um, as I mentioned before, Equinox Fitness really wanted us. I, they really wanted, they particularly wanted our West LA flagship club, although Reebok Sports Club New York was even bigger. I mean, that was 140,000 square feet. Uh, but they, they, wanted, they wanted the company, and they came at us with an offer eventually, even though we weren't looking, that was very hard to turn down. And it was a little bit of a turning point in uh, business life. I, I'm an excellent marketer, if I say so myself. However, social media was coming on really strong. And although it interests me, 
I knew I was going to have to learn a whole new bag of tricks. Not that I was the marketer, but I, I did oversee marketing as one of the things because it was my thing. And um, I just thought, well, maybe this is the time. And, uh, and so they I thought that they would dumb down the offer and we would end up not selling. But they knew that because we didn't care, <laughs> they couldn't. <laughs> and one day we were sold. <laughs> and it was really sort of, whoa. But um, I haven't. They did promise me that they would operate it on the same high level we did. But people do what they do. And they have their thing, and we had our thing, and they are different. But I still go to our flagship club. I still, we still have at least 15 of our private trainers there. We still have our ballet company. We still have a lot of people that worked for us in the club. So it doesn't feel real foreign to me at all. And it worked out. I mean, I people said, Nanette, it's so much part of your identity. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to know who you are. And I remember it happened, we happened, Jim and I happened to be going to Hawaii the day that it closed, the, the deal closed a few days after it was supposed to. And it closed on October 18th, 2011. And I remember walking out of the club and the new owners walking in. And two hours later, we got on an airplane, Jim and I, to go to Hawaii. And for about five minutes, I went, uh-oh, uh-oh, what if I was wrong? What if this was my identity? And then I went, nah. And it really, I'm fine. I've, all, I've been fine with the You've with never the sale. back. Never look back. Because you know, there's a time in life you need to really sort of enjoy life. And I put so much of myself in that that I could not just do it halfway. See, some people can just figure out how to do it halfway. I was not one of those people. And so, um, and you know, when things get big, it's not the same. When you start, you know everyone, you know every employee, you know every nuanced little teeny detail of the business. And I had a hard time in the interim years when we got so big I couldn't know all that. But I got used to that. I did. But um, it, 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 it's been good. You know, it, it was time to enjoy life. And I was singing all the way home. <laughs> I bet you. I bet you. Were. Well, I was actually singing all the way to the airport that day. But <laughs> and you, Jim, you're talking about is Jim Yuri, your husband. Yes. And uh, now you guys have been here at Bighorn for sixteen years. Sixteen years. And uh, you have a great family, four kids. Yes. And uh, tell us a little bit your, about your life since you sold the club. Well, you know, I met Jim when we still had the company, and he, a girlfriend wanted, met him at the backstage of the Billboard Awards and told me that she just met the perfect guy for me, but, uh, in the, but she just set me up with someone else that she said was the perfect guy for me, and I was going out with him in two hours, so this was a little unnerving, but uh, Jim called me, and he was in, he worked for Clive Davis in New York at that time, and he was getting a divorce, which I didn't know, but now I do, and, um, I was going out on a date, and we happened to meet in a restaurant, we were at the same restaurant that night, and, um, 
uh, we met in a dark hallway for 10 seconds. Are you Nanette? Are you Jim? Blah, blah, blah. And then he sent me to de rigueur a box of CDs that he sent everybody that he ever met, including every hostess at every restaurant in town. And, uh, <laughs> and then two years later, I was, I was, I, we were gathering at a bar to, or at a restaurant actually, but we were at the bar, my girlfriends and I, to have my belated birthday dinner and I started talking to this stranger and he asked me if I could get the bartender's attention and he said he should order Absolute because at that point um, Absolute uh, Seagram's owned Universal and so he was being loyal to Universal where he worked Universal Music um, which was all one big company at that point. And I said, oh, I like that loyalty. I really like it when someone doesn't wear a Gold's Gym t-shirt into the Sports Club LA. And he said, wait a minute, you're Nanette. I'm Jim Urie. And, and then my girlfriend go, and then my girlfriend, we were waiting for her to be seated, came and it says, Jimmy darling. She's very dramatic. And she, her husband had worked for, with him for years. So all of a sudden from a total stranger, he, he was someone that we kind of knew. And um, he had moved to LA and bought a house a mile away from me in Brentwood. So, and knew my house because he was dating a girl up the street. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if any other female got into that new house of his or not. <laughs> <laughs> but, probably, but he'll never tell me. And, um, and so, a few days later, he called me and uh, we went out and we've been together ever since. So, that was 1996. So, uh, you know, we were together quite a while while we were both working a lot. Well, yeah. it certainly has been an extremely successful relationship. Yes, it has. And, and all of our kids get along, which is great. They're all sort of pop culture kids. They all are. You know, they're just sort of the same. You know, my daughter's a movie and television producer, the, the one I gave birth to. The second one's an attorney. The third one's a fashion designer in New York, and Ryan, the eldest um, and the only boy, is a software designer. So, but they all have this pop culture kind of orientation. So they all um, they get along. We all sort of get each other. That's, that's <laughs> ter sounds terrific. Sounds yeah. terrific. Let me ask you a couple of other things, Nanette. And one of those things is, who is the person that's had the most influence on your life? Do you think? Michael Talla, my partner. It's been a long-term relationship, a long-term friendship. Yes. And uh, working together all those years, you become very close, and those are the people that really mean a lot to you, along with your family, of course. He, you know, he always believed in me. He always believed in me. He would always side with me, but he always, he always believed in my instinct, which is my other gift from God, is my instinct. And he always believed in it when other people, and you needed it in black and white, you needed proof, but he understood my un instinct and believed in it. And he just always had my back. And still does, still does. And uh, so definitely. And another question is, what advice would you give the 20-year-old Nanette? today? <laughs> I think <clears throat> uh, 
maybe not being quite as humble. Maybe I don't sound humble on this podcast, but <laughs> I don't know if I do or I don't. But um, I, you know, you gotta you gotta believe in yourself and ask for what you need. And as a female, and always take a seat at the table instead of in the back of the room, which I always had because of my position. That was something that Sheryl Sandberg said in her book, uh, A Lean In, but it is so true. So many women will come and take the back seats and not the one at the conference table. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of people think, especially women think that they just got lucky, but they're not, they're kind of a phony and it's just kind of an accident. And I'm probably one of those people. And you, you don't ask for what you deserve. And I don't think I was ever very good at that. I know I wasn't good at it. And uh, so, and I don't know whether I could, even if I could give that advice today, I don't know if I'd be good at it. If you were to change one thing in your life, would you change anything? <laughs> no. I, I, I really wouldn't, you know? Everything that happens, it shapes you, and I can find the good ways it shaped me in every single instance. Nanette, I just want to thank you so much because you've not only been candid and forthcoming, and but this story impacts everybody that's going to listen, especially young women especially other women. Uh, but it's been so refreshing to have somebody be so honest, so forthcoming. And I really want you to know that I really appreciate you being here today because it's not always easy to relive some of the things in our lives. But the end result has been pretty fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nanette.